This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week. I am your host, Don Grant. Joining me today, author, journalist, and podcaster. Her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, New York Magazine, The Washington Post, PolitiFact, Popular Science, and many, many others. Joining me all the way from L.A., Alana Strauss, how you doing, Alana? Hey, pretty good, pretty good. What are your numbers looking like there in LA now? I know uh, California was, you were on like a full shelter in place, no? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, pretty locked down. I mean, it still is pretty locked down. I think things are getting a little better, but they're still at record high. I thought I read that Newsom said he was going to start to loosen things like this week. Yeah, yeah. I feel like people were a bit surprised about that, about that one. Um, so you have your own podcast as well. Tell us what your podcast is, is about. Yeah, it's called Flipped. And basically, I come up with kind of a crazy way to change the world. And then I ask an expert what would happen if that were actually implemented or just magically happened one day. So we're going to be talking about at least two of those things. Uh, but the only difference being that I'm not an expert. So, hey, that's going to be even better. Uh, <laughs> uh, you ready to do this? Here we go. Yeah, let's do it. Thing one. Thing number one. What would happen if money suddenly disappeared? Now, this is one of the questions, the kind of questions that you ask on your show. And I will admit it's it kind of to me, this leads down a really interesting philosophical path about the nature of money in the first place. Now, when you did this on your podcast, you actually spoke to a Yale economist, Ben Polak. What what was the main thing that came out of that in terms of what he said about what would happen if money suddenly disappeared? You know, I I'd come up with this question and thought it was such an absolute abstract, weird, you know, almost otherworldly question, like something you might put in sci-fi, but, you know, something that doesn't exist in the real world. Right. And what he told me, and, you know, it was pretty obvious once I heard it, but I never considered it. This has apparently happened before and all the time, you know, and he just started listing examples of places where the currency had failed. And yeah, apparently things don't change that much. Like there's a lot of chaos in the moment, but eventually everyone comes up with a new way, like just some sort of new currency. Well, I mean, it's an interesting question because at the end of the day, it leads to the question of what is money in the first place, right? I mean, if, and and that to me is almost more of an interesting question because it gets really, really philosophical. Take a hit off the skull bong and, and discuss it very deeply about what actually is money in the first place because... I'm not much of a money guy. I don't know a whole tremendous amount about finances. You know, when GameStop happened, I had to look up for a good hour to figure out what the hell shorting was. But at the but I still recall when I took an economics class in high school and I didn't want to take it on the very first day when the teacher said that money was fiction. And it kind of blew my mind that money, when you think about it, doesn't really exist anyway. I mean, you know what? It's not that it's not real. It's just made up like... Like language is made up, you know, like we're speaking to each other in this language called English, but it's just all a bunch of stuff people have made up. There's nothing scientific about the word tree referring to like a tall plant. Right, right. But the but the, the money idea is sort of the idea of, you know, you and I both have this piece of paper in our pockets and you and I have decided that this piece of paper is equivalent to this amount of value. But the thing is, that's just because that's a 
that's an agreement that has been made by us and by the society that we live in, but it could be anything. I mean, that value could be assigned to anything, and that's where things just get really, really wonky when you realize that there's very little that is preventing money from having no meaning whatsoever, which leads back to the original question of what would happen if it suddenly disappeared? Yeah, I mean, money doesn't really, there isn't really intrinsic value to it. And I think that's becoming more and more obvious, like as our money becomes more and more digital. Right. Like even on slips of paper, it's still, it's still kind of fictional. But at this point, it's just, you know, ones and zeros. Have you ever heard of the island of Yap? It's a, it's an island in Micronesia. And they had this, up until the early 20th century, one of their currency was these things called rye stones. And they were these large disc stones that were taller than you or I, that weighed hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And these were actually used as currency. But the thing about them was that was really fascinating is if, if, you, if you read about them, they're really interesting. And they kind of changed the way you think about money. They were used for big payments for things like dowries and that kind of a thing. But the idea was that you didn't actually have to have the stone to own the stone. So one of these big ass stones would be sitting around the village and everybody would know that that's Alana's stone or everybody would know that that's Don's stone. And if I decided to pay you, I would say to you, oh, okay, Alana, I'm paying you for this. Here's my stone. And then everybody would now know that you own the stone. But the stone just stays and sits there for the entire time. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, it's not exactly our system, but our system is just sort of a more complicated version of that. Yeah. Now, um, when you spoke to Ben Polak, he basically said, "What would happen? Like, if, if I mean, if you t if you think about the 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 thought exercise of this, what would happen if mon money suddenly disappeared? If you and I woke up tomorrow and money was not there, would it be a utopia? Would it be a free for all?" What was his overall opinion about sort of which way that would go in terms of a positive or negative? So his opinion was neither. His opinion was people, <laughs> you know, the government quickly establishes a new currency system, maybe ties it to an existing working currency system. I mean, that's happened in a lot of countries where the currency system fell and they just ended up tying their new system to the U.S. dollar. Right. Germany, Israel, uh, Brazil. Not, I mean, Germany, not the U.S. dollar. But yeah, these are places where the currencies essentially failed and they had to spend time convincing the citizens that, hey, there's a new currency and it's worth something. Yeah. Apparently the, the big change that happens is that if you are a person who had a lot of savings, you are in trouble. <laughs> like it's, right. it's just... Like, especially like older people with retirement savings. Yeah. So that would be like a massive redistribution of wealth from people who have savings to people who don't. So essentially, if you think about the, that pragmatically, from old to the young. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's further textured by that uh, most of the time, say someone's rich, right? They have a lot of money. They probably don't have a lot of it in savings. Right. Like they have a lot of it in stocks and investment. So they're fine. Who really like gets, you know, in a bad situation over this is people who have their money just in actual bank savings. So yeah, it kind of goes from like, older middle class people out or older lower class people you know yeah 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 and and that's where this goes from the realm of just the hypothetical to the realm of realistic because of course there have been times where this happened most people know about the time of hyperinflation in germany between world war one and world war two where what would have bought you a house you know a month ago suddenly buys you a can of beer and that's where you have significant issues because now you have older people in particular who have all of their life savings that are suddenly worthless. 
I think that also has to do with inflation is what you're describing. Like if there's hyperinflation going on. Yeah. So like that, I mean, that the German example of hyperinflation is about as close as we can come. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong to this theoretical idea of what would happen if we suddenly, if money suddenly disappeared, because in Germany between World War One and World War Two, for all intents and purposes, money kind of did disappear because the money that the Germans had agreed on as this is our currency suddenly had virtually no value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's a case where it disappeared due to hyperinflation. Right, right, exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> if you if you don't have money, the, the thing that you pointed out that the, the gentleman you spoke to talked about, which is interesting, is that if money all of a sudden disappears tomorrow, the thing that's going to happen is the government is going to step in with new regulation and create new money. So the implication is that we can't really survive without money. I mean, I don't know if it's that society couldn't survive without money so much as it is that the forces that currently make up society would not let that happen. Right. If, if the dollar suddenly doesn't exist within a few days, you exchange to another currency. But barter is one of the things that people talk about. The problem with barter is that we both have to want the thing that the other person is offering, right? If you and I decide to have a barter system going on, I have to want what you have and you have to want what I have. Right. I mean, that's kind of just it is, um, you know, the barter system isn't really a natural human system. Like before we had currency, we didn't really have a barter system. We had more of a tribal kind of system where things were sort of shared within your family and friends and there might be trading outside that, but right. it doesn't make up most of the economy. Um, but right. Like if us today, you know, we today are used to a system that depends entirely on money. So if it disappeared, we'd have to like jerry-rig a barter system all of a sudden. And <laughs> that's like, true. as you mentioned, it's, you know, pretty inefficient. And then the other thing that would come up is how do you pay people to do their jobs, right? You and I go to work tomorrow. How do we get paid for our jobs? Yeah, I mean, you pretty much need a new currency system uh, unless you have a very simple, you know, like maybe if you own a grocery store, you can pay your employees in food or something. But I think in general, you're pretty much waiting for a new currency system to, to come about. I guess the thing that always exists for me as, as sort of the mind mess of all of this is that for, for the most part, money exists as the idea of money, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like when, when you or I get paid, it, the, it's the idea of money is transferred from your employer to your banker. And when you go down to Starbucks, the, tr the idea of money is transferred from your bank to Starbucks. Like that money rarely exists in the real world. And so it's just the idea of money that exists. And when you think about that, it really takes you down some interesting pathways. It also comes into play now that we are in the midst of a pandemic. I don't know about you. When the pandemic started, I think I had like a $20 bill in my pocket and a $10 bill in my pocket. I'm pretty sure they're still there. Like, you know what I mean? Like no one's using currency anymore because number one, obviously the hygienic reasons for doing it. But at the end of the day, the other thing is that we're all using our cards. We're all using our debit cards. We're using our credit cards. And consequently, you know, legal tender is just it's kind of this. It's so passe. It's out there. No, it's true. I mean, I don't use currency very much. Certainly not as much as I did, you know, when I was a kid. Thing two. And for thing number two, we take it to Alana's article about betting against QAnon. You wrote about this particular individual, Patrick Cage, 
who bet against QAnon. How did this actually occur? Yeah, well, there there's a betting site called Predict It. It's this betting site where you can bet on largely political things happening in the future. Kind of like a stock market. I had heard of Predict It, but I, I wasn't sure that I fully knew what it was. And then after I read your article, I looked it up and it is crazy. I mean, it is actually just like a stock market where you can bet on largely political things happening, like Trump's chances of reelection, probably wouldn't want to bet on that one anymore, or any number of things. They can be global, they can be worldwide. It's a New Zealand company, but you can bet on pretty much anything. This guy that you talked to noticed a couple of trends a couple of years ago. So he went on Predict It. He was kind of interested in testing out his political skills. He'd worked on some political campaigns and he just wanted to see, you know, if he could do better than the average person. Right. So in general, he did not find that he could do much better than the average person. But he started noticing some very strange bets. Such as? Things like, uh, you know, there'd be a bet over whether Hillary Clinton will be indicted in the next six months. This, this all leads down a pretty sort of familiar path. Right, right. It's all these sort of Democrat figures who, you know, you would not expect to be indicted in the next six months. There's nothing really leading up to it. But he started noticing that all these people were betting on that. Turns out these were all QAnon people. We'll talk about QAnon a little bit more in a second. So he decided that he should bet against all these things because you can bet on the chances about whether or not these things will happen. And of course, the thing with QAnon people is that they are fully in the belief of all of the things they are reading in their chat rooms, in their chat groups, and do not see the reality of the situation. So when it comes to a financial situation like Predict It, they were actually losing money. Yeah, that was the weird thing. Like, I, I'd understood that QAnon was full of all these strange conspiracy theorists before, but it's another thing to actually see them putting down money on these things. Yeah. Like, yeah, I thought the same thing. Yeah, like, I think part of me just assumed they kind of enjoyed having those conspiracy theories and that sort of community and you know those ideas but like they didn't really you know like part of it was just, just like they didn't really believe this or like part of them must know there's at least much reason to doubt q is not going away they are not going anywhere yeah i mean it's weird because q himself seems to have disappeared at least last i heard I, I want to back up for a second in terms of in terms of Q. I want to read just the quick opener to an amazing, amazing piece on The Atlantic by your colleague at The Atlantic and your executive editor, Adrian LaFrance, who wrote a fantastic sort of full-on article about Q, which started with this lead, which I think tells everything. If you were an adherent, no one would be able to tell. You would look like any other American. You could be a mother picking leftovers off your toddler's plate. You could be the young man in headphones across the street. You could be a bookkeeper, a dentist, a grandmother icing cupcakes in her kitchen. You may as well have an affiliation with an evangelical church, but you are hard to identify just from the way you look, which is good because someday, soon, dark forces may try to track you down. You understand this sounds crazy, but you don't care. You know that a small group of manipulators operating in the shadows pull the planet's strings. You know that they are powerful enough to abuse children without fear of retribution. You know that the mainstream media are their handmaidens in partnership with Hillary Clinton and the secretive denizens of the deep state. And you know that only Donald Trump stands between you and a damned and ravaged world. You see plague and pestilence sweeping the planet and understand that they are part of the plan. You know that a clash between good and evil cannot be avoided, and you yearn for the great awakening that is coming. And so... 
You must be on guard at all times. You must shield your ears from the scorn of the ignorant. You must find those who are like you, and you must be prepared to fight. You know all this because you believe in Q. Yeah, it's kind of weird, right? It sounds a lot like a religion. It does, doesn't it? And I mean, it's I guess it's no surprise that a number of, of believers in Q are religious people. Here we are post-election. They are not going away. Q is not going away. They are now going just to different platforms. They are going to different things. I mean, some people are kind of, I guess, waking up. But a lot of people are saying, no, we'll find something else to believe in. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the whole misinformation problem. Do you report on conspiracy theories and potentially give them more of a platform? Do you ignore them and just kind of let them spread? Do you try to ban them and let them go other places? I guess I don't know if there's going to be a solution to it unless we can find some sort of solution to misinformation, period. Which I, to be honest, I don't think we can. But I think the question that you just asked is really the $64 question, which is, to what extent do you report on these stories? Because if you look at somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, yes, we have to report on her somewhat unique belief system. If she believes that the California wildfires were started by Jewish space lasers, that is newsworthy. But at the same time, when you report it, are you not then taking those things and amplifying them to other people? It was the same problem that a lot of people had when covering Trump, which is that the more you covered all of the outrageous things you said, the more you played into his hands and gave him the attention that he wanted and deserved. Yeah, Trump's really the poster child for that. So now that Trump is, is gone, he's not gone, but now that he's at least a little bit more muffled, a lot of people thought that Q would go away, the conspiracy theories would go away. I mean, it's good in one sense in that we do not have the person with the largest megaphone and the largest platform in the world amplifying the message and tweeting out Q tweets all the time and taking this into a higher place. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that these beliefs are gone because conspiracy theories existed long before Trump came along. I mean, and part of the issue is we don't really know how this all works. Like this is sort of a problem society has only started taking seriously in a way. Like I'm not even clear if talking about conspiracy theorists actually spreads the conspiracy. I'm not sure if that's how conspiracies spread or if it's much more person to person kind of people looking at small sources. I, I mean, I think it's one way that it's spread, right? I mean, I think your point is valid. Like one one problem is that when you make when you make fun of a conspiracy theorist or a report on that sort of thing, it spreads that thing just as quickly as sharing it sincerely would do, right? I mean, so if I share a, a Q thing sincerely on my Facebook, or you and I talk about it on this podcast, it's still going to be sharing it in one way or the other, right? Yeah. I mean, really, we just need, I think, more fact checking somehow. I don't think professional fact checkers are going to be able to handle the volume of that. Well, now, let, so let me ask you a question, because you are a reporter. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that we are currently in almost a post-factual world? Because that's one argument that a lot of people make, that one of the, I guess, most long-lasting legacies of the Trump years will be, I guess, the, the distrust of media, obviously, but also the distrust of truth. Yeah, I mean, Trump definitely, you know, contributed to that phenomenon. I'm not sure I'd give him credit for it. I think the internet is itself sort of set this up like all of a sudden anyone can publish anything anyone can make anything look professional you know unless you really understand how media works and you're really media literate you know it's just kind of people believing what they feel like believing 
We should also say, I mean, you know, contrary to, to sort of popular assumption or opinion, it's not really only, you know, MAGA types who believe in conspiracy theories. Conspiratorial oh, no. thinking is, you know, is any any demographic at all. It's not unique to any single demographic. Uh, and it's just the idea of, oh, I can connect these dots in, in a way that already conforms to my pre-existing, uh, you know, way of looking at the world. It's, it's a little bit, it's very much like a confirmation bias in that I already believe that Hillary Clinton is a bad person. I already believe that Donald Trump is the devil. And consequently, you give me this number of dots, I will do my best to connect these dots in a way that aligns with what I already believe. I actually talked to somebody who covered flat earthers, you know, people who believe the, the earth is flat. Yeah, yeah. And he said a lot of it is just people kind of playing that game, like seeing if they can possibly come up with an explanation for what should be the most obvious thing in the world. Right. And that's that's part of entering into it, you know, is almost like you play at it until you actually join. I think one of the reasons why Trump did so well when it came to conspiracy theories and why Q sort of burst upon us is that one of the biggest characteristics of conspiracy theories is this preoccupation with the others, right? Them they uh and and they can be you know the the people who we do not like the people who we despise the people who are coming to get your jobs the people who are doing whatever and of course this is right in trump's wheelhouse right and consequently i think that's one of the ways why that's one of the ways trump and q were so made for each other yeah they definitely have this you know the bad guys are out to get you kind of thing like if you really want to be able to cut through 90 percent of conspiracy theories you know if you see a conspiracy theory ask yourself how many people would have had to cover this up something like the moon landing right it would take so many there's a conspiracy theory going on now that china has secretly invaded the u.s and canada with hundreds of thousands of troops and the media is just covering it up <laughs> that's a real thing a lot of people believe right now and you know it's just like ask yourself how many people would have to be in on the conspiracy just like anyone who saw chinese troops marching past right. you know like millions and millions of people and not only that but here we are also in a world where every single person is walking around with a high definition camera in our pockets right. so if i happen <laughs> to see you know a massive amount of troops marching down young street i'm pretty sure i'd take a snap and put it up on social media somewhere yeah or like a minimum a ton of posts being like i'm seeing this going on you know like conspiracies do happen but like not million people conspiracies you know right. like it's it's really hard to keep one human being quiet <laughs> <laughs> Just finishing off, getting back to your article for a second. So th this man, Patrick Cage, he actually made a fair amount of money because all of these Q people were going to predict it uh, and they were betting on all of these things that they firmly believed in their own little Q delusions. And so he would always, of course, bet against them. And they would, I mean, the bets that they would make would obviously be so misguided and so kind of outrageous. What was the example? I think you gave an example in the article. After Trump had already lost the election, something like 14% of people betting on it still bet that he was going to win somehow anyway. Thing three. Thing number three. What would happen if cars didn't exist? We talked about this with money. We're going to talk about it with cars. Alana, you hate cars. Yeah, I do. <laughs> what? Tell me why you hate cars. I, okay. 
I should preface this by saying I do enjoy the use of cars sometimes. You know, I'm not a total zealot. But by, by the way, have no shame in the fact that you hate cars. There are many people who are very much in, you know, I, I have a car and a bike both and I use both. And I have a hatred for cars in a number of ways. I mean, I, I feel like they've taken over cities and towns. Like basically our actual physical environments have been entirely taken over by cars. The world is basically where people live and then cars getting them from place to place like we've sort of lost all of our public space we've lost kind of the, the bustle of you know town centers at least in the u.s i don't know canada i mean it's pretty much the same yeah it's the same in canada as well it's the same in, in i guess most major major cities around the world but it's funny you say that cars have kind of taken over towns on your podcast you spoke with peter calthorpe who is an urban designer and he almost implied not the cars have taken over towns but the towns were almost designed for cars right and that most of the major urban centers that we have now are designed for cars to get around, for cars to park, for cars to exist. They have been designed to accommodate cars at virtually every turn. Yeah, I mean, redesigned, right? Because most cities and towns are older than cars. Right. That's why it's interesting when you go to Europe, right? My wife is from the south of France. And so when you go to Europe and you see some of these very small streets that were obviously not designed to have major cars in them, or if you go to Amsterdam and you see three or four story parking garages just for bicycles filled with bikes, you realize that not everywhere has this obsession with cars. Yeah, I mean, even if you go to Wall Street in New York City, that those were clearly streets not designed for cars. They're really small. They're windy. It's weird because you think of Wall Street, you would think it you know, would be like the most modern kind of giant building car centric. <laughs> it's actually a really old part of the city and all the all the streets are really small. Okay, so let's play a game, which is the big what if we wake up tomorrow and there are no more cars. Mm -hmm. What is the first thing that happens? Well, uh, you know, according to Peter Calthorpe, the man I talked to, everybody buys a bicycle. <laughs> Well, actually, let's let's back up a bit because there's a, first of all, there's a few other things that would happen too, right? I mean, like there would be chaos and confusion, obviously worldwide. I think a, a dozen governments would probably fall. Saudi Arabia would be a little bit of a mess. Most oil exporters would be a bit of a mess. Some lives would be changed forever, uh, and then life would go on. And as you say, a lot of people would buy bicycles. Yeah. And we sort of get to redesigning our cities and towns for a non-car kind of existence. Yeah, it's going back to what we were talking about a second. In, in the New York Times, Farhad Manju had a piece about uh, during at the very beginning of the pandemic, because, of course, here we are in a pandemic world where not as many people are driving cars anymore. And so a lot of people noticed that, hey, we can hear birds singing. Hey, there's not as much noise pollution. There's not as much pollution pollution. And the one thing that you notice is that in most North American cities, you know, you see a landscape that is constructed as he says, primarily for the movement and storage of automobiles, not for the enjoyment of people. Endless wide boulevards and freeways for cars to move swiftly, each road lined with parking spaces for cars at rest, retail establishments ringed with spots for cars, houses built around garages for cars, gas stations for cars to feed on every other corner. It is an entire ecosystem which is designed for cars. But as Peter Calthorpe and you discussed on your podcast, this could be changed, correct? Oh, for sure. I mean, it used to be different. It could always, you know, 
We're not we're not talking about some sort of crazy fiction. Like it could just go back to how it was. You know, that's the interesting thing is that thoughts like this. It's funny when I, when I mentioned to my wife what you and I were going to be talking about the idea of what happens to a world without money or you know what would happen in a world without cars. She said, "Oh, I hate questions like that." And I said. Why? And she said, well, because it's, it's not really going to happen. Like, these are all just hypotheticals. These are all thought experiments. And, you know, my answer was, you're right. It's not going to happen. But at the same time, when you go through these thought experiments, even though it's not going to happen, it kind of does force you to think about these things in a different way, right? It forces you to sort of look at cars and examine their impact on our lives or look at currency and see what its existence actually is. And so by going through this idea of, what would happen in a world without cars? You start to see, oh, yes, we would have less pollution. You know, like over 150 million North Americans live in areas that don't fit federal air quality standards. All of a sudden, if there's no cars on the road, guess what? Those people are going to be a little bit healthier, less carbon monoxide, less hydrocarbons, less nitrogen oxide, all this stuff. And these are the things that we can think about. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of this stuff isn't as far off as you'd think. I mean, Amsterdam is a good example of a city that used to be really car centric and then changed its mind and just, you know, put bike lanes everywhere. Yeah. And it's not without cars, but it's, you know, it's a city that is not a car centric one where most people aren't getting around by cars. And the gentleman that you spoke to, Peter Calthorpe, the urban designer, talked about the fact that in China now, they essentially, ha and I don't know if it was in Beijing or wherever it was, they have laws where every other street cars are not allowed. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what he told me. Uh, and actually, I believe it's national policy. Like, it's not just one wow, city. Wow, that's crazy. I don't know if they've implemented it. Right. I, you know, I, I just know what I heard from him. But uh... Well, I do know that there's a number of uh, at least European cities. I know London. I know Florence. I know a couple of cities that have major parts of the city that they keep completely free of cars. Or if you do want to operate a car like a cab, you have to pay a whole kit and caboodle for the past to be able to drive through the city centers so that they're doing as much as they can to make sure that these uh, urban centers, sometimes it's actually for architectural purposes. I know that's the way it is in Florence, that they want to keep the buildings uh, as, as sort of pristine as they possibly can. And the, the pollution from cars was actually damaging them. But I mean, it could also be a matter of the other things that we've talked about. Yeah. I mean, even in the US, you know, you look at New York, those changes are happening there too. Like they're closing off various streets to car traffic. They're saying, you know, these are pedestrians only, you know, pedestrian only streets. Like there, there's chunks of, you know, Chunks of the busiest pieces of Manhattan are just closed off to car traffic now. You know, most transportation planners will tell you it's not all or none. Like, it's not like there's one form of transportation everyone must use for everything and then, right. you know, get rid of the rest of it. It's about what kind of balance we want. The gentleman that you spoke to, he said two things that I found really, really fascinating. One of them is, you know, the, the reason why we got to where we are right now in terms of our reliance on cars and how that happened was that after World War II... We had all of these factories and all of this industrial capacity, which was there to make munitions and to provide for the soldiers in World War II. And what the hell do we do with it now? Right. And, and consequently, in 53, he passed the Federal Highway Act, which repurposed all of this industrial capacity to make automobiles. 
and this led us down the pathway to where we are right now. And as Peter Calthorpe said, to urban sprawl, which is one of the main issues facing us right now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, this all kind of happened mid 20th century. It's it's weird because now it seems like the world must have been like this forever. But I talked to my grandparents and they're like, oh, yeah, we didn't really... You know, there were some cars around, but it wasn't the main way everyone got around. We used the streetcar. Oh, that well, that's the other thing that he said was, which totally floored me, which is that in at that time in the 1950s, uh, Firestone and Standard Oil and Goodrich all formed this consortium to buy up all the streetcars and put them out of business and replace them with buses, which is crazy. Like, I mean, I, I shouldn't be surprised by that because we've seen how corporations do this kind of thing. But essentially you have oil companies and tire companies saying, oh, streetcars? Yeah, they're not using our product. Let's get them off the street and get buses on the street. And that's exactly what happened. You know, <laughs> it wasn't an accident. No, people forget that the city where you are right now, LA, was a streetcar city. My city, Toronto, still is a streetcar city. Our, some of our main thoroughfares still exist on streetcars. Uh, but I guess, you know, we didn't have quite the same uh, corporate interference in the 1950s as, as you did south of the border. You know, one more thing I want to mention about the uh, the cars thing. So a world without cars isn't just about imagining our world, but all the cars disappear. It's it's that cities and towns would be completely different places without right. cars. They wouldn't be so spread out. And the small town has disappeared in the U.S. Like it's it's mostly just suburban sprawl. You can't like walk down the street and run into neighbors and meet people and see activity going on in a town square. And that stuff is not just like some sort of ancient fantasy. Like that was what the U.S. was like, you know, early 20th century. Uh, one, of, one of the points that the guy you talked to said was in China, for example, only 30 percent of people have cars. Mm -hmm. So why aren't 70 percent of the streets designed for those people without cars, which is a really valid point. And it you know, probably helps that the wealthier people are the first ones to get the cars and they've got a bigger say over policy. Wait, wealthy people get what they want? Is that does that happen? <laughs> I know, I know. That's actually my crazy conspiracy theory. <laughs> and that will do it for this week. Alana, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any socials that you'd like people to uh, follow you on? Oh, yeah. I'm Ilana E. Strauss on Twitter. You are writing for a number of magazines. Do you have anything in the works right now? You want to give us a sneak preview about what's coming? What's come, what are you working on right now that's going to be coming up? Oh, man. Or can you not tell us? Is it shrouded in QAnon type secrecy? I guess one thing I can say is I'm working on a podcast about homelessness. Thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, what's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Article? Something else? We want it. Email us at threeinterestingthings at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram at three, that's the number three interesting things. Or tweet it to us at three interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or review. It really helps people find the show. We'll see you next week.